With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Listeners, and welcome to Ohio Mysteries. This is our 10-minute mystery edition, a little slice of intrigue in the middle of your week. I'm your co-host, Steve Yoder, and with me is our storyteller and journalist, Paula Schleiss. Hi, everybody. Steve, tonight's story is about Harry Beasley, a Medal of Honor war hero from Newark, Ohio, who met his end not on the front lines of battle, but on the streets of his own hometown. Oh, this sounds interesting. Yeah, do you know anything about the Congressional Medal of Honor? Uh, Yeah, I know a little bit about it. It's a big deal. It is a big deal. Yeah. As a matter of fact, it's been around for more than 150 years, and at last count, only 3,504 people have received it. So I need to start Harry Beasley's story with a little military history and a battle I am quite sure you have never heard of. It takes place in 1914, when relations between the U.S. and Mexico are strained to the breaking point after a military leader named Victoriano Huerta, whose nickname is The Jackal, who took control of Mexico during a bloody coup the previous year. There was so much tension, it was only going to take a small spark to set it off. And it happened when nine American soldiers wandered into a fueling depot in a city called Tampico near the Gulf Coast, an area of town that was decidedly off-limits. The nine soldiers were arrested. Now, the U.S. demanded the soldiers be released with an apology and a 21-gun salute. And guess what? The sailors are released and with an apology, but not the 21-gun salute. So, Steve, what's the normal reaction to this kind of slight? Well, of course, you start a war. Yeah. Yeah, somehow this incident escalates to the point where President Woodrow Wilson orders the U.S. Navy to prepare for the occupation of the port of Veracruz. But while Wilson is waiting for Congress to approve his action, he learns President Huerta is expecting a delivery of weapons on April 21. Wilson thinks there's no time to wait for Congress. So he orders the customs office at the Port of Veracruz to be seized and the weapons confiscated. On the morning of April 21, 1914, the U.S. Navy prepares to seize the Veracruz waterfront. Joining this effort is the USS Florida and a group of Navy sailors known as the Blue Jackets. And among these Blue Jackets is corn-fed and Ohio-bred 
Harry Beasley, son of Mr. and Mrs. Charles Beasley of Newark. While Mexican forces see this U.S. invading force and they retreat. But the port is not undefended. Citizens of Veracruz turn out. Cadets at the Veracruz Naval Academy come to join them. Prisoners are released to help the effort. And about 200 line soldiers from the Mexican army, they stay behind to fight. Thus begins the Battle of Veracruz. For Harry's part, he's with the team that's assigned to take over the port's customs house. According to written reports later, Beasley and four others dodged, and here's a quote, murderous rifle and machine gun fire from riflemen in the customs building and machine gunners from a nearby hotel. Well, Beasley, he was slightly wounded during this, and one of his fellow sailors was shot in the head and died. Now, the Mexican locals, they're trying to defend the city, but they are ill-suited for the task. Most of them are untrained, and they're hopelessly unorganized. So it only takes three hours for the U.S. military to take possession of every key target on their list, including the post office, the telegraph office, the railroad terminal, and the power plant. But the locals aren't giving up. They keep fighting, and now the Americans have a problem. They'd like a ceasefire, but there's no one to negotiate with. So U.S. commanders decide the only way to end the fight is to take over the entire city, not just the waterfront. More battleships and cruisers rush from Panama to join the effort. There was some more fighting over the next day, but pretty quickly, all fighting ceases. Yet the Americans remained at Veracruz until November, eight months. That's how long it took for them to be able to sit down and settle their issues at a peace conference at Niagara Falls. Now, this all seems like a blip in American history that shouldn't have left any significant mark, except... Secretary of the Navy, Josephus Daniels, asked that 56 medals of honor be awarded to participants in this action for extraordinary heroism during the battle. This was very controversial. These medals are supposed to be rare. 56 medals? Why, that was the most medals of honor handed out for any single action before or since. As a matter of fact, World War I, which is about to start, is only going to have twice that many medals for the entire war. Recipient Major Smedley Butler, he even tries to return his medal, saying the award had been cheapened and was, and here's a quote, an unutterable foul perversion of our country's greatest gift. But the awards are handed out, and Beasley receives one of them. He's one of the 56. And while giving them out might have raised some hackles, there was no doubting that Harry Beasley was skilled, brave, and loyal. Because when his time in the Navy ends, soon after the medals are awarded, World War I begins, and Harry Beasley re-enlists, and he serves until 1921. After what they called the Great War, they didn't know it was the first of two world wars, so back then they just called it the Great War, he returned home to Newark. And there he found a job that certainly could use his skills. He became a police officer. He was a crack pistol shot, and he earned the highest score of all Newark officers in the revolver shooting tests. By June 30th, 1931, he had more than five years of policing under his belt when he arrived for his regular shift. It was a Tuesday, and his beat began at 5 p.m., 
and it included making patrol rounds of the city's downtown after dark. So once the sun had set, Beasley began his usual tour of the town square and business district. He began on the south side of the square, traveled down 3rd Street to Relage Avenue, then headed east through a private alley where the backs of several stores had their rear entrances. And that's where Beasley surprised a pair of thieves. The men were dragging a safe from the rear entrance of the bargain shoe store to their getaway car parked in the alley. The car faced west, headlights on. It was those lights that caused Beasley to turn down the alley in the first place. And when Beasley rounded the corner facing east, the headlights lit him up. He didn't have a chance. It was as if he had walked into a firing squad. Without warning came a volley of shots. Beasley was hit twice and fell to the ground. His vision was obscured by the lights blinding his eyes, but he could see flashes of gunfire, and he aimed at them, emptying his six-shooter. The return fire was enough to frighten the bandits, who dropped the safe and dashed to their running car, which presumably contained a third member of the gang. Witnesses were drawn to the commotion. They saw the car leave the alley, head south to the market alley, then west to 3rd Street, and then it was swallowed by the dark. Beasley was still alive. One bullet tore through his chest, passed through his lung, and lodged against his spine. The other bullet went into his right foot, shattering bone. He was conscious long enough to give investigators an account of what happened, but those blasted headlights stopped him from seeing the make of the car or giving descriptions of the robbers. Beasley's wife, Esther, and his family stayed at his bedside at Newark City Hospital, and a community prayed for his recovery. But on the second day, at 11 in the morning, Dr. Carl Evans told the family that Beasley would not survive his wounds. He died about an hour later. He was 38 years old. Obviously, this was a very big deal. Not only did the entire police force turn their attention to this case, cities throughout Ohio offered aid in searching for the gunmen. Police didn't even have many clues. The robbers had used a small wrecking bar to force the rear door of the shoe store open. They removed a cash register containing $5.05, and that's all they got. The safe they left behind had $500 in it. They had managed to drag the heavy safe out of the store and about 70 feet down the alley when they were interrupted. Over the next few weeks, suspects were taken in for questioning in a dozen different cities. In Chillicothe, two men named Maurice Dare and Paul Murphy were arrested. Police found a pistol and two empty shells in a car they were driving. They were fingerprinted in Chillicothe, and authorities there rushed the prints over to Newark to compare them with those taken from the safe that had been recovered from the alley. Police thought they had a strong circumstantial case against the two men, but the lack of fingerprints absolved them. In Zanesville, three other men were taken into custody. They had a mark on their car that looked like a bullet hole. Two of the three men had rap sheets. One of them had a revolver in his possession. But their alibis held up, and they were cleared. In Columbus, a tip led police to Clyde Connor and Jesse Evans and a hideout filled with stolen goods. They admitted to burglarizing 21 homes in Columbus and five in Newark the previous eight months. 
but they gave dates and addresses in as much detail as they could remember to prove that they were busy doing other things and were much too busy to be in place for that safe robbery and Beasley's death. And they gave enough information that police believed them. Newark police told the press they had a new angle on the shooting they couldn't divulge. And the news report said, it is known that an arrest will no doubt be made in the next 24 hours. But the truth was, the police had nothing. On January 24, 1941, now this was 10 years after the slaying, a man named William Hayes, who was serving an armed robbery sentence at the West Virginia State Penitentiary in Moundsville, confessed to being one of the trio that had robbed the bargain shoe store. He told a story of that day, that he and two companions had loafed around the streets of Newark, then went to a pool room in Granville, and later returned to Newark and had supper. They drove a four-door 1930 Studebaker sedan that they stole from Akron. They drove into the alley behind the bargain shoe store at 9.15, where Hayes jimmied the door and entered the store. He said he and another man were still working on the safe inside the store when the firefight started outside between Beasley and their getaway driver. They abandoned the safe, jumped in the car, and drove away, leaving their stolen car on a street in Massillon. But some of those details didn't match the facts of the case. And police also learned Hayes had confessed to murdering two other police officers whose actual killers had been caught. In the end, nobody believed Hayes. It seemed like he was just out to make a name for himself. And a lie detector test cleared him. Harry Beasley was laid to rest on July 6, 1931, after a service attended by more than 2,000 people. Businesses closed for the event. Newark Police Chief McMaster said Beasley was the pride of the Newark Police Force. Dr. Evans said the bullet that reached Beasley's spine paralyzed him in his hip and legs, so it was nothing short of a heroic feat that he kept firing in the direction of the fleeing thieves. Fellow officers served as pallbearers as Beasley was taken from the First Methodist Church to Cedar Hill Cemetery, where he was buried with full military honors. Ohio Governor George White attended the funeral and said what no doubt many were thinking, how tragic to serve the ravages of war only to be cut down at home. Wow, that was a good one. That was a really good one. Well, that's it for our midweek 10-minute mystery. We'll see you here Sunday for our next regular full-sized Ohio mystery episode. In the meantime, enjoy the rest of your week, and may all of your mysteries have happy endings. It is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.